The message comes to us today from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. And it reads like this. Are you not from everlasting, Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure eyes and can see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all them up with his hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the blessed word from the Lord. Last week in the early services, I mentioned the significant challenge as we look at what is happening in the world And I mentioned specifically the attacks in Brussels and how those uh, caught all of us by surprise. Many uh, folks reeling from that, folks still missing. Little did I know that while we were meeting last week in Pakistan in a celebration, a Christian celebration of Easter... A, a man would walk with a bomb strapped to himself and in detonating that bomb would uh, kill 69 worshipers, mostly women and children, Christians who had gathered to worship God. The questions continue to roll as they did with Habakkuk. As the evil unfolds in the world, we continue to ask the difficult questions Last week, Habakkuk's questions were, How long, O Lord, and why? How long, O Lord, will you allow this to continue, and God, why? And so uh, God answered him. You see, Habakkuk's question had to do with God's own people, the Jews. It had to do with the Israelites and their own sin. These are God's chosen people who are walking and living in sin. And it had to do with them. And Habakkuk said, the righteous are surrounded by the wicked. There is injustice, God, among your own people in your own land. Why and how long? And God answered, 
I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and God described them as bitter and hasty and swifter than leopards and fiercer than ravenous evening wolves. And and the ability to be precise as an eagle goes after its prey. God described them, and Habakkuk listened at this description that God gave of them. And uh, God said, I'm raising them them up, and certainly history bears that out. The Babylonians, Chaldeans, same name, uh, same uh, people, different name, came into existence, uh, overthrew the Assyrians, swept through uh, Israel and uh, the other known world at the time, and were deposed of within 70 to 80 years. This uh, massive nation grew and fell uh, almost as quickly as it grew. God raised them up, and when Habakkuk heard that, That didn't answer his question. He had more. He had more questions. And from Habakkuk, uh, his conversation with God that we get today, we learn something about the sovereignty of God. And perhaps you've never talked about it or even thought about God's sovereignty. Let me give you a simple, basic, working definition of the sovereignty of God. You'll see it on the screen, the word sovereign. And the word reign in the middle of it. In order to understand the sovereignty of God, you understand that God reigns. He is in charge. He reigns over the course of events of human history. That is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God's ultimate reign over the course of events of human history. And so in order to understand the word sovereignty, just extract the word reign. God reigns. That's God's sovereignty. And from this conversation, we learn, and this is our, uh, this is our uh, one-liner today, our uh, kind of take-it-to-the-bank statement from Habakkuk. We learn that we uh, can't question the sovereignty of God, but we can question God in his sovereignty. We can't question the sovereignty of God, but we can question God in his sovereignty. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? If you look at verse 12, Habakkuk, who is complaining, doesn't diminish his view of God. In all of his questioning and in all of his complaining, he doesn't denigrate God at all. He says, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One. That word everlasting is a neat word. It's based on the root word east. Why would uh, uh, he choose such a word based on the word east? Because if you uh, think about it, uh, there is no east pole, is there? If you go east, you'll just keep going east. You'll never arrive at a pole or a destination. Same as if you go west. If you go north, you go south, you'll get there. I find it interesting. I find great confidence in God's word when I consider that prior to the scientific knowledge being common knowledge of a north and a south pole, that God would move on the writers of scripture so that they would write it in such a way so as to be completely understandable once the knowledge from science came. You say, what do you mean? Uh, He said, a word based on east to describe the eternalness of God, that God is before everything. 
There's another occasion where this occurs. And this is when the psalmist is writing about forgiveness of sins. And he says, you have cast my sins uh, into the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against us anymore. And as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that interesting? If the psalmist, not knowing science, had written as far as the north is from the south, then you and I could go and discover our sins somewhere deposited there. But there is no east or west pole. When we're forgiven, we're forgiven. Amen? We're forgiven. And that's what the psalmist is saying. And so here we have God described in his eternal nature. He pre-existed all of creation... So Habakkuk doesn't diminish his view of God at all. Neither does Habakkuk diminish the personal relationship he has with God. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Look at the possessive pronouns here. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. Habakkuk, in all of his questioning, in all of his confusion, in all of his bewilderment over what is happening, still says, you are my God and you're my holy one. You're pure. Holy means to be pure. God, you are who you are. We can't question the sovereignty of God, but we can question God in his sovereignty. You say, how does Habakkuk go about doing that and how do we do it? We question God because his actions seem to contradict his character. We question God because his actions seem to contradict his character. Notice what Habakkuk says. He says, God, you're from everlasting. You're my God. You're the Holy One. You are pure. Yet with all of this, how is it that you are raising up such a vile, evil people? If you are holy and pure and personal and eternal, how in the world could you use someone so evil as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to do your work? God, is that really you? Alan Michael and I now prepare uh, sermon, uh, sermons together. If your kids were in kids' worship this morning, they heard a variation of this very sermon. And tomorrow uh, by noon, at noon, on the blog, we'll post conversation starters for you to have with your kids about what we're talking about in here today. And as he and I were talking this week, he, reminded, he, he shared with me uh, an experience he had. He, a student at Montreat was working at Montreat. He was working for someone who was there at, uh, at Montreat. And he said she was a good boss and he worked for her for a summer. She was a good boss, took him out to lunch. Uh, once she, she was friendly, good to work for. And a year and a half later, the news comes out and Alan Michael's boss, uh, had embezzled $270,000 from a school that was just struggling to stay afloat. And immediately, Alan Michael is faced with this difficulty. And his difficulty is, I thought her to be this kind of person, but yet her behavior showed she was this kind of person. Habakkuk has the same uh, fear and concern where God is. God, I thought you to be, and I know you to be holy and pure. I know you to be my personal God. I know this is who you are, God. And if you're all that, or since you are, why are you doing this? Notice what he says. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 
Why do you idly look at traitors, verse 13, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see, God's answer for the unrighteousness of his own people was to raise up an unrighteous nation to take care of his own people. And that makes no sense. That's the title of the the message when God doesn't make sense. That makes no sense. We question God because his actions contradict his character. Secondly, we question God when he allows evil to triumph. When God appears to sit idly by while evil rises and he doesn't check it and he doesn't stop it, we question him. Notice verse 14. Habakkuk begins by talking to God, saying, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Wait, God didn't do that. If you go back to the book of Genesis, God made man to be over the fish of the sea. And God created man to rule, to to dominate, to uh, steward, to take care of the fish of the sea. And all of a sudden, Habakkuk says, the roles are reversed. Look at this. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. God, you are sovereign. You reign. And all of a sudden, it looks like anarchy and there is no ruler. Commentators believe that when Habakkuk writes this, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is already making his march into Jerusalem. And the city is being besieged. And as the city is being besieged, there's no food coming in and things start to unravel and Habakkuk says, God, this is what you're doing. Verse 15, he comes in a sense to his senses and says, no, this isn't God who is doing this. He he says, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 15, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. It's It's the king who's doing it, but he feels like it's God. Why? Because God raised Nebuchadnezzar up. Notice the language. It's all about a net and hooks and fishing. So fishing season opened yesterday here, right? And and when it opens, the banks are covered with people. Like they just come out of the woodwork. Why? They want to catch a fish. They want to catch a fish and they've been, they've been, you know, freshly stocked. And so you've got little places that you can get to. And literally I have been before where lines get crossed up between people trying to catch the same fish. Have you ever thought about that? All of fishing is about deception. Everything. The best fishermen are the best deceivers. Why? Because your goal is to convince that fish, that that worm is really not wrapped around the hook, right? That's what you do when you fish. You convince the fish that the worm is really not wrapped around the hook or that that artificial lure is the real deal. That's what fishing is all about. And that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing, except he is doing it with people. 
Corrie Tim Boom. Many of you are familiar with her story. Finished reading this book when I was in Africa by Eric Metaxas called Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. He's written one that correlates uh, regarding seven women and the secret of their greatness. And there's an excerpt from it, uh, a chapter on Corey Tim Boom in the back of this book. Corey Tim Boom lived in Holland with her dad, who was a watch repairman. And the, the family all worked together in his little watch repair shop. They had a modest income, uh, a close family. She lived there with a sister who was unmarried with her father. Uh, two sisters, rather, and her father. And Hitler began to make his, uh, his march across Europe. And when he did, he got to Holland and so Corey Tim Boom and her family, they got a carpenter who engineered this uh, hiding place in their house where they could hide Jews. And so the Jews would come to stay, but if there was ever any danger, they could go into this place and you literally could not see it there. And for months, they hid Jews who were running for their lives. And then one day they were found out and they were all marched outside and they were beaten and they were taken to hog uh, and they're processed through. Corey Tim Boom would learn later that her aged father only lasted 10 days in the prison before he died. Her brother-in-law was set free. Her uh, sister, one of her sisters, Nolly, uh, she was let go. But she and her other sister, Betsy, would remain incarcerated. She says, one day Betsy had disturbing news. Uh, through other prisoners, uh, Betsy had discovered the name of the stranger who had betrayed the Tim Booms. His name was John Vogel. As Corey later wrote, flames of fire seemed to leap around that name in my heart. I thought of father's final hours, alone and confused, of the underground work so abruptly halted. And I knew that if Jean Vogel stood in front of me, now I could kill him. Wow. That's Corey Tim Boom. Maybe you walk in church with your godly face on and you would say there's never been a moment when I thought I could kill someone. Most likely there has. Corey was astonished at Betsy's reaction to the news. Unlike Corey, she was completely free of anger. Finally, she asked, Betsy, don't you feel anything about Vogel? Doesn't it bother you? Oh, yes, Corey, terribly, Betsy replied. I've felt for him ever since I knew and pray for him whenever his name comes into my mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering. Thinking of her sister's words that night, she tried to sleep. Corey began to wonder if Betsy, in her gentle way, was reminding her that in God's eyes, she was guilty too. Didn't John Vogel and she both stand before an all-seeing God? And according to Jesus' standard in the New Testament, they were both guilty of murder. Corey wrote, For I had murdered him with my heart and with my tongue. 
Habakkuk isn't quite there yet. He has questions for a God who would raise up anyone as brutal as Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his work. Uh, notice how King Nebuchadnezzar is described. He brings them up with the hook people, drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his drag net and he rejoices and is glad. He uses people for his own pleasure and he's glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. The people that he captures become his means of advancement. And so he worships war. He worships deception. God, how is it? Habakkuk wants to know. That you would raise up someone like that. Is he then, Habakkuk asks, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? It's not just Israel. It's all these nations that the king is destroying. Habakkuk, God, is there any end to this? Is this to go on and on and on? Last year I began reading a book that honestly I just can't finish. I I can't yet. I plan to. It's called The Insanity of God That Gives You Any Idea. Nick Ripkin, missionary to Somaliland, wrote this. David Platt, you may have heard of, wrote wrote the foreword. Ripken says many things about his experience in Somaliland, but this one is gripping and unreal. He says, I encountered one of the most lasting images of depravity when my Somali guides took me to see the compound that the current leaders had seized. After reportedly slaughtering the entire family that had previously lived there to serve as military headquarters and personal residence. Inside heavily armed gates, the warlord and his minions generated their own electricity, watched satellite television, And ate like kings. Just outside was a mob of several hundred desperate children. Bellies bloated by malnutrition gathered around the walls of the compound. The children were anxiously awaiting what was a frequent, though not daily, occurrence. When the carcass of whatever animal had been slaughtered for the leader's supper was heaved over the wall. The starving children descended like locusts, tearing and ripping off chunks of bloody animal hide to chew on and find the little nutritional value that it provided them. The conditions were horrifying. 
I was forced to reconsider both my definition of evil and my understanding of the fallen nature of humanity itself. I cried out to heaven, God, where are you? Do you know what is happening in this place? What kind of God would allow this to happen? While I have not been to Somaliland, I have been to Managua, Nicaragua. Some of you were with me. We put on our masks. We trekked into the landfill that covered acres. Why would we go to a burning landfill? Lung disease waiting to happen to minister to the children and their parents who live there. Google it. You'll see the images. We donned our masks. Some did dental work. Some did feeding. Others did general health. We mistakenly distributed a month's supply of chewable vitamins to these children. Only for them to eat every one of them before they left our station. Some of you are saying, Jerry, uh, I was hoping this series would answer some questions, not create some new ones. Habakkuk is dealing with a merciless, merciless, genocidal killer named Nebuchadnezzar. His questions are, Legit. Habakkuk reminds us that we can't question the sovereignty of God, but we can question a God who is sovereign. So what does he do? Verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. The, the tower was where uh, the guards of the city would go and watch the enemy as the enemy was uh, watched for the enemy in case an enemy was coming into the city. It metaphorically was the place where prophets would go to listen to and hear the voice of God. And, and Habakkuk says, I'll go to the tower, I'll stand there and I'll watch and I'll listen and I know God's going to get after me for asking such questions. But as I said last week, God never in all of Habakkuk rebukes him for asking the questions. Not once. Not once does God say that question should never be asked by you, Habakkuk. (laughs) 
Someone has said, so long as the harness of faith restrains the energies of the Lord's own people, they may be edified as they join Habakkuk in his efforts to search out the depth of the mysteries of the Almighty. God can handle your questions. And so Habakkuk is to wait. Habakkuk isn't alone in his waiting. If you go to the book of Exodus, God tells Moses to go hide in the cleft of the rock and wait. And I'll show up and I'll talk with you. If you go to Numbers, Balaam is the prophet who is told to go and wait. And Balaam waits inside to hear from the Lord. If you go on a little further, you'll find Elijah. The place is in dire straits. The country hasn't had rain for years. Elijah is running for his life. And God says, Elijah, go to a mountain and wait. And there I will speak to you. And now Habakkuk joins their ranks. He will wait too. God will speak to him. He expects a rebuke. He's already preparing his answer back to God. When God comes after me, this is what I'm going to say to him. What in the world then do you and I learn from this? These, these glaring injustices in the world that you and I get a, a, a tiny glimpse of, but that are occurring in mass. What do we learn from this? We learn that we have a choice. We can either wait and trust or wait and worry. We can either wait and trust or we can wait and worry. There's no straddling the fence when it comes to this. If God is sovereign, I trust him. And Habakkuk began this section by saying, you are my God, you are my holy one, you are pure. I'm not questioning your character, though your actions seem to counter your character. And though evil is apparently triumphing, you are God. We can't question the sovereignty of God, but we can question God in his sovereignty. I know this isn't a a sermon that most people would think uh, could cause people to want to know this God. Except for one thing. What Habakkuk didn't have, you and I do. What is that? Habakkuk looked forward. You and I look backward. That's why if you go to the book of Hebrews, there's a whole chapter dedicated to Old Testament saints who lacked What you and I have, but still had faith. And there's something about faith, which we'll touch on next week. There's something about faith that God honors. Habakkuk looked to a God and said, I'll wait. We look back on what? The cross. We look back on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we do, we see something there that causes us to be able to handle this incredibly difficult question. 
What is it? Here it is. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Habakkuk had never seen the cross. He had not seen Jesus crucified. He did not know of God giving up his only son. He, by faith, trusted a God minus the cross. We, by faith, trust a God with the cross. We see Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and in so doing, don't have to have near as much faith. As did Habakkuk. Uh, Romans 8.32 is a greater to lesser argument. Philosophically. You say, what do you mean? It means if God would give his very best for your greatest need. Then will he not give everything underneath for your lesser needs? That's a greater to lesser argument. Let me explain. <clears throat> Many of you know he's sitting here this morning. Trent had surgery a week ago Thursday. All right, so we trek down to Chapel Hill on Wednesday, pre-op stuff, and we get a phone call from the surgery center. And when we do, uh, we talk all the normal stuff. He can't drink this. He can, can't eat this after this hour. This is where, where you need to come. This is what time surgery is. This is how long surgery is going to last. Uh, all of the stuff. If you've ever been through surgery, you know what I'm talking about. So we go, go through all of that routine. And then the person says something to me that honestly, in all of Trent's surgeries, I think that was his 13th surgery, has never, ever been said to me. She said, and one of you will need to stay here uh, at the hospital during the surgery. Well, really? Like we were going to go shopping and eat and just have a good old time. I hung up and I said to, to Wendy, why did she say that? Like, why did she say that, that we needed to stay? Did she think we're dropping him off and like, good luck. Hope it works out, son. I mean, really? It was the strangest conversation. And I said, well, of course, we'll both be there. And so the next day, we're in the, uh, in the pre-op, and Adrian and Mark Ellis come down graciously, and they're hanging out with us in the pre-op there, you know? And, and um, I'm talking to them about that conversation, and our pre-op nurse overhears me saying to them, I can't believe the lady said, well, at least one of us will have to stay. And the pre-op nurse says, oh, no. Parents drop their kids off all the time and leave them. And she said it so nonchalantly. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, I think it's a break for him. Yeah, so Trent doesn't know until now. We went bowling and... Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> we went to a Sky Zone place. Uh, no, we, we stayed, right? And then the doctor came in and he told us about Trent's surgery. It's more invasive than ever, be more blood than ever. He could be sicker than he had ever been, all that kind of stuff. So we go in and sure enough, yes, yes, and yes. Now, could you imagine us waiting three or four hours and we get in there and Trent's just, you know, sick and that kind of thing. We're saying, listen, come on, son, we got three hour drive up the road, you know, get over yourself. No. Why? If we had done the very best for him, which is to find the very best doctor we think we can find to do the surgery. Won't we do everything else he needs? 
if, if God has given his best to meet your greatest need? Is there anything lesser that he won't meet? No. So if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you say, Jerry, I'm not sure I want to know a God who lets Somaliland be Somaliland and races up the Chaldeans to do what they did. And, and I would say, I'd struggle too were it not for the cross. Then I look and then I see Jesus. Could you imagine that conversation? Remember how uh, Habakkuk described him? The eternal one. So before there was any humanity, it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They got along so well. And, and God said, let's make man. And he looked out and he saw the slaughter of an innocent family. Carcasses flying over a wall while children ravaged them for raw meat. And when Jesus said yes... He saw himself dying, not just for those children, but for the savages who live in the walled city. That's grace. And if God would give Jesus, if you would know God, you know, a sacrificing, self-sacrificing, giving God who gave his son. If you don't know him, you need to know Jesus Christ and you'll know the Father through him. And if you do know him, He's got you. Oh, but I want him to do it now. You either wait and trust or you wait and worry. Let's pray. Father, these are deep waters that we have navigated. We have joined the ranks of many who have tried to navigate these waters as did Habakkuk. Right now, in a way I cannot describe, God, in the midst of the atrocities about which we have read, both ancient with Habakkuk and current with Pakistan, and Hitler and Somaliland. I feel so close to you, God. 
And I do so because of Christ. I do so because of the ability to trust in Jesus. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for Jesus Christ. And Jesus, all of this in the early service and even now reminds me to sing to you. To end a prayer to sing to you, and that's what we're going to do. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not much more freely with him give us all things? Jesus, you have met our greatest need. And while we do not understand, we wait. And in our waiting, we trust. And in our trusting, we worship. And in our worship, we sing.